Welcome to The Known Experience. I'm John Poitiville and here with Sean Scott. And today's guest is Julius Thomas. Uh, Julius was introduced to us by Robbie Tubahan from Lululemon. Uh, they continue to work together. Uh, he hails from Stockton, California. I meant to ask if you know the Diaz brothers, but uh, we can talk about <laughs> that later too. Yeah. Uh, he played uh, basketball and football at Portland State, four years of basketball where he set school records, and one year of football, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, he was drafted by the Denver Broncos, played in Super Bowl 48, two times pro bowler, also played for the Jaguars and the Dolphins, retired from professional football in 2018 uh, to pursue his interest in neuroscience. Uh, he's the vice president of the Society of Sports Neuroscience. He's on the player advisory board for the football players health study at Harvard University. He's the co-founder of Nestor Health and Performance and founder of Mastery Development, a consulting and coaching company that helps others reach their peak potential through science and psychologically based practices. He's working on his doctorate. And as we said before the podcast, he is clearly an underachiever. And he doesn't um, sleep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about all the stuff you're doing now uh, with neuroscience and a holistic perspective of health. That's something that's really important to us. But I got to hear this. Four-year basketball player in college, did not play football in high school, played one season of football in college, and then ended up playing in the Super Bowl. How, how does that happen? Yeah, you know, number one, it happens with starting off with a vision. I think that one of the things that I try to encourage people is your mind kind of presents you with these ideas sometimes. And so much of the time we tell ourselves, oh, no, not me, not, not anybody where I'm from, not anybody that, you know, whose family's my family, not, not, can't happen. And so we kind of shut down those, the way I like to think of them as callings, right? You're being called toward this vision. And for me, my first vision was to be a, a college student. And my best way to do that was by playing basketball. And I was lucky enough to get a college scholarship and hoop. But when I got to college, I was in the dorms uh, that first summer. And I would hear the whistles when I woke up in the morning of football practice. And I thought, man, you know, I really should have played football in high school. I should, I just should have done it. But it's okay. I, I know there's two sport athletes in football. I'll do it in, I'll do it in college. So I go into the football office and I say, hey, I, I want to play football. You know, I'm 6'4". I want to play wide receiver. And the football coach is like, hey, you know, we don't say no to 6'4 wide receivers. Right. Uh, so then I went and talked to the basketball coach. I was like, hey, coach, uh, I just want to let you know the football team said they, they would love to have me out there. And he said, you're, you're not playing football. You're forward. And that's what you're going to do here at Portland State. And there was a guy just in passing. One of, the, one of the assistant coaches on the football team said, hey, you know, if you don't redshirt, you'll have an extra year of eligibility and you could use it to play football. And I don't think he thought much of it, but that seed was kind of planted in my mind. So throughout my time playing basketball, I would just get this calling, just this inner feeling of, man, you might be a really good football player. Maybe you should try it. And for years, and I would tell some of my basketball teammates, hey, you know, I'm going to try football. And they'd be like, bro, you're crazy. Like, how, how much have you drank tonight? Like, just be quiet. Get out of here. Um, but when I came to my senior year, I knew that that was going to probably be my last year playing basketball. So I walked into the football coach's office again, new coach. Sits me down. He says, what's going on? I said, hey, you know, I want to play football. He says, well, if you're serious, you'll show up to our first spring meeting. And that first spring meeting was uh, two weeks after our conference tournament in basketball. And I showed up to that first spring meeting and decided that I was going to give spring football a chance. Right. You're, you're going from playing basketball to getting hit by large guys. Was that a bit of a shock to the system? Um, switching from basketball to football was one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. Mm. It was a challenging physically. It was challenging emotionally and mentally. Um, but it was also a challenge um, from a skill perspective. Like I went from being senior captain, knowing everybody's position, knowing all the things that I needed to do. I had some skill deficiencies in hoop. Yeah. Don't, don't let me overstate how good I was. There was a reason I switched. But when you show up to football that you haven't played football since eighth grade, I don't know anything. I don't know how to put the pads on. Right. I don't know the words that they're using. Right. Um, I for sure didn't know any of the techniques. 
And I thought I was going to play receiver and they were like, no, we're going to put you a tight end. So then I knew I had an entire other part of the game to learn. So it, I really, really struggled for my first two weeks. It was very hard on me to adjust to a different culture. You know, I didn't feel like I really fit in the way that I looked and approached life and things were similar from all being young men. But the way the football players think is a little bit different than the way the basketball players think and behave. So everything was all at once. It was, it was very, very challenging for me in that first couple of weeks. Yeah. Wow. So, you, so, so kicking it back is, um, did you kind of always approach life as, you know, uh, maybe like problem solving, right? You're, you're, you're in the world of science now. So you're obviously good at kind of breaking it down, understanding the big picture, um, you're in psychology as well, but was that something from your parents or, or was this kind of like a love, you know, this idea of tackling challenges and, and figuring them out and, you know, did that go back to them or, or was that this, this new approach for you? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and I know it wasn't an intentional approach to life. Like I wasn't, okay, how do I take on big challenges and how do I overcome them? I think for me, I was very survival minded. I just wanted to survive. I just wanted to get to the next rung in life. I wanted to get to the next cliff that I could get finger purchase on and pull myself up. And then I'll figure out what to do when I got there. But I have always had this intellectual hunger. Like I like looking at things, trying to understand things. I like to think deeply about things. So I, I wouldn't say that I really had this challenge kind of mentality that I have now at that point in my life I had a calling and I'm a person of faith and I believe that like sometimes there's there's this thing knocking inside of you for a reason and I didn't want to be the guy sitting on the couch with your friends and family around going oh man I could have did that oh watching the game oh look that could have been me and so I told myself just try it what's yeah. the worst that could happen it right. doesn't work and then you can just go on to whatever life brings to you next. So I didn't want to live with the regret. So I stepped into it. And um, like I said, it was one of the hardest things I'd ever done for those first couple of weeks. But over time, I started to figure it out. And then I really started to get this second attempt at developing who I am through challenging circumstances. The first was becoming a basketball player. I wasn't good at that either. When I started, I was like a freshman on the end of the bench of the freshman team <laughs> and then had to climb my way up that mountain. And then I was like, all right, well, football is just a new mountain to climb, go climb it. But then this time I was, I had more wisdom. I had better skills and habits. And so that really helped me to get through this extremely steep learning curve. I like you said, uh, you thought what's the worst that could happen? Cause that was something that was shared with me once that just is a game changer, right? Like most decisions, the worst that could happen is you have a great story about how you tried this crazy thing and it didn't work out. Um, but that, I think that can really, that mindset can really, um, if you don't have that mindset, it can really close a lot of doors before you even get the chance to walk through them. Cause you just decide it's not for you. Not me, not somebody where I'm from, how, why, we do it mentally to ourselves all the time. Yeah. So I want to get to what you're doing today, but I do want to go back to one thing. Tell me about like where you're from and what, what that was like, uh, was like growing up in Stockton. What was it like for you? What possibilities did you see for yourself in the world? You know, I am very proud to be from Stockton, California because of the mentality and the work ethic that being from a, a pretty tough place instills in you. In, in Stockton, you had to scratch and claw for everything. There is a lack of abundance in some areas there. And because there's a lack of abundance, that creates increased competition. And we always said like, you gotta fight for everything in Stockton. Like Stockton, like fighting is just part of our culture. You gotta be ready to fight. You, you have to be ready to protect yourself, defend what you have at all times, or somebody will just take it. So growing up in Stockton, I really had to learn how to step into situations that were stressful and find the best way to get through it to be able to get to where I was going. And that could have been something from, you know, how do I walk from one neighborhood to the next neighborhood? 
and how do I navigate, you know, some of these groups or gangs or people in between all the way to, you know, when we get home from school, you know, our parents aren't there with fresh cooked meals sitting on the counter for you. How are we going to go eat today? Like, do we got to walk to somebody's house and, you know, they, they have some food in the cabinet. So we're going to go grab some of that, eat there, then go somewhere else. You know, do we need to go hoof it a couple miles to Carl's Jr.'s with a dollar 50 cents and, you know, get one cheeseburger kind of thing. So Stockton really helped me be okay with hard. And so hard is not a deterrent for me. Most people I find when I'm coaching or consulting, they're having trouble to have success because it's hard. Mm. It's hard. And I'm like, okay, yeah, <laughs> you can learn to tolerate hard. And that's what Stockton really taught me how to do. It taught me how to survive through hard times. And that has become one of the most foundational skills that, that I possess is this resilience that you can only get when you come from a place that, I mean, I think in like the... 2010s it was ranked like the worst city in america like four out of ten years thus it produced some great mma fighters as a result <laughs> got a fight in stockton man man so fast forward you know you you obviously had these shifts challenges um got drafted had success um then injury happened you got to make a decision right to keep plugging away get another contract or switch. So was that an easy decision for you? Um, like, you know, this, this new passion ignited, right? Like, Hey, I, I kind of want, want to learn. I see myself helping people in this capacity, or was that a difficult transition? It was another really hard transition because of what I had to step away from. Um, it's really hard to leave jobs that are good paying jobs. Football is a really good paying job. It's really hard to leave jobs that other people find to be extremely important. The status involved with football, it's hard when you go tell somebody like, hey, you know, I think I'm getting a different calling to go do something else. And people are like, but you're a football player. You're supposed to love it. You're supposed to feel like the luckiest person on earth. You're supposed, mm -hmm. so there's all this around it. Um, but then there was a lot of anxiety I had within myself when I started to come to the realization that I'm going to make this big shift because I'd never done anything else. Right. I'm almost 30 years old. I've been an athlete my whole life. I'm good at it. It doesn't really take as much work as it used to. Now I could just, you know, show up, work hard. I've already built all the mental templates and I already have all the learning. Everything's learned. But one thing that I always tell myself is I don't ignore the callings. I feel like I'm the recipient of forces outside of me that have said, Hey, kind of go this way. Hey, kind of go this way. And I know that I always want to be passionate and on fire for life. And if my passion leaves me, I don't keep going this direction because it makes sense because you make a lot of money and it's a really cool job and you do cool things in the off season. I'm going to follow what feels right. And it felt right to help people. And I don't think that I've ever truly felt a match between my profession and my personality. All the things that I've done in sports have been amazing and, and I'm so grateful, but there was always this feeling of mm, something's just a little off. I don't know if this is truly me, but I found that in what I'm doing now. And I think that that is the greatest feeling that, that I could have. You know, out of, out of all the transitions, right. Uh, going into studying, you know, neuroplasticity and, you know, CTE, that's, it sounds difficult, right? I mean, again, it's a different part of your brain, <laughs> you yeah. know, from the, the physical to shifting to something that's really complex, right? Neuroplasticity, I feel like every month there's something else they're learning about it. It's not this, it's a fairly new kind of part of science. Um, and so was that, was that something specifically that you were interested in? Or again, you just were like, you know, I'm hearing a lot about this. I'm going to try this out. What was the what was the kind of catalyst? Man, I, I really wish that I could I could tell you that I <laughs> I got this thirst and hunger for neuroscience. When I was 29 and I was leaving the NFL, I had no clue what neuroscience was. It wasn't even a word that I was familiar <laughs> with. I wanted to help people. So I decided that maybe I should learn about psychology. Yeah. So I had somebody from the Dolphins reach out to Nova Southeastern University. They're actually on the same campus. The Dolphins have since moved, but they, when I was playing, they were. And I thought, well, they've got a psychology program over there. Maybe I'll just go visit it. 
So I go to visit the psychology program, the sports psychologist, Dr. Rob Seifer, a great mentor of mine, friend. He says, hey, great, I'll meet you. We talk. And he goes, are you sure you want to retire? Like, why? And I said, no, I'm going to follow this calling. He said, all right, well, if that's what you want to do, you can come sit in some of my doctoral classes whenever you want. So I'm 29 and a half. I'm retired. I literally, for the first time in my life, have no structure. I can do whatever I want. So I would just go to campus and sit in the classes and I would think, ah, oh, you know what? I, I kind of like this. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go back to school and get a doctorate. And then I, by chance, and this is one of these things, and I'm glad you asked this story because I think it's an important lesson for people to hear. So I'm the Dean is one walking and I see the Dean and she says, Hey, I'm going to a lecture. Would you like to come to this lecture? Here I am nothing to do but I'm not sure. I just want to go home. You know what? I'll go. What's the lecture? The lecture is the serotonergic influence on mothering behavior in rats. What? That's what I, I sat through that lecture on just pure, what you learn from being an athlete. Like, well, let me just be here and pay attention. I knew not one word. I had no idea what serotonin was and why the hell are we talking about mothering instinct in rats? By chance, I walk out of that meeting meet Dr. Uh, Jamie Tarter, who is a, my mentor in neuroscience. And we struck up a conversation. She likes the fact that I'm going back to school and says, hey, you should take some of my neuroscience classes. I have no clue what neuroscience is. So I would go to the campus. I would sit in her office hours and we would talk. And then she would start giving me neuroscience research articles to read. And I'd never read a research article before. And so I would take them home and I would go, I don't know this at all. I can't, I don't know these words. I don't understand why they write this like this. Yeah. And there were times when I thought I would never get it. But uh, it's funny what happens when you keep working towards something. So that's how I got into neuroscience and such a great thing that I met her because that's how I started to learn about the brain. Psychology doesn't focus that much on the brain. Right. We focus on the mind and behavior. Yeah. So through her, I started to learn about the neuroscience of how the brain works, how the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system are coordinated how the activity of cells and what's happening within cells starts to create behavior, tissues, on and on. And that's how I got into the biology. I mean, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. One is, um, you said from my sports background, I, I just decided I would sit there and pay attention. Tell me more what that means to you and how, how, that, how you learned that in sports. You know, one thing I notice a lot that's very different in sports is it's one of the few places where you can expect a lot from a young person. Um, I think if there's one thing I notice, especially from being a professor in, in an, um, at a university, is we've really relaxed what we expect from young people so much to the point where oh, I don't feel like it today. Oh, I don't feel that great. Becomes okay to not do things. Um, but when you're in sports, you have to come lock in every day and give your best every day or somebody's going to call you out. And not only is somebody going to call you out if you don't do it, they're going to punish you for not. So I played seven years in the NFL. You don't, like It blew my mind when I got out of the NFL and I see people in meetings and they're sending texts. Like I would get aversive reactions like, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> like you're going to look at your phone in a meeting like we look at a phone in our meetings. That's a $10,000 fine. Like if your phone goes off, that could be a $5,000 fine just for the wow. noise. So I've got this anxiety and I'm like, out here, everybody just gets up, walks in and out, sends text messages, looks around, da, 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 lollygagging. I've had a person, this whole job is to make sure I was locked in every day for the last 15 years of my life, literally standing over me all day, every day, yelling at me as soon as my attention leaves for a second. Right, right. You can't make mistakes in the National Football League. There's just you, You're locked in at all times. So I know how to go to a lecture, sit in my chair, keep my eyes on the presenter the entire time. And mm -hmm. I didn't know a word she was saying. Um, she's actually, it's really cool because she's still one of the professors at the school. And I laugh and I tell her that story. But that's what I mean by just sitting there and paying attention, even though I wasn't comprehending anything. Hmm. Yeah, and today we we probably call that mindfulness. I know that's a, a very uh, trendy word, 
but uh, paying attention to your surroundings, to the people around you, to yourself, your own mind and body and heart. Um, I love the uh, holistic perspective on on health, and we talk predominantly to men on this podcast. Um, you know, when it comes to the mental, uh, the the emotional, the physical. I mean, some people would add spiritual into that. Mm-hmm. Where where do you where do you see men really? Um, needing help or or needing to be um guided in in all of that the most um so i i'm such a big believer in these three i call them buckets of wellness or these aspects of health mental physical emotional i understand the way each bucket works together to allow you to function at your best on a day in and day out basis. And when I think about men, I think about one of the more at risk populations of people, right? If I just zoom way out from a health perspective, men are at risk, like cardiovascular disease, strokes, right? Like these are these things that we get and we don't often like to talk about. So for me, I think what do men need the most? Health education, right? Like don't tell men what to do start to teach them what's happening. And then they're going to start to come up with the solutions and they're going to start to try to solve their own problems. Simple things like getting a blood test once a year, going to get a doctor, going to the doctor, getting a checkup, learning how to eat nutritious diets, learning what sleep is and why it's important. I didn't know why sleep was important for so many years. I was like, whatever. I had a, a high school coach that used to always say, uh, you know, you only need to sleep four hours a night. Anybody that sleeps more than that's lazy, right? Like you hear these things that you heard growing up. And, you know, I look at health literacy and really how do we create behavioral change in broad populations of people? It starts with understanding what the health risks are and which things lead to those risks. Then it moves to understanding about what health benefits are and the things that create health benefits. And the last is do you have efficacy? Do you believe that you can change your daily behaviors? and move you in a direction that's going to make you be more healthy, have greater longevity, have greater joy, and get more out of life, right? And so I'm a big component on, okay, let's educate them. And then when you create the dissonance, that's when people are going to start making change. Right. So in, in two of your, you know, company, the Mastery Development and uh, Nestor, one seems kind of more science, right? Nestor, I, and correct me if I'm wrong. But, um, and then mastery development is kind of the wellness and like the integration of it more to reach peak, peak performance. So how do the, how do those two, um, differ? Um, and are, are you still active in both or are you kind of more focused on? Yep. Still very active in both. Um, Nestry for me is really this opportunity to train from the neck up my whole life. I I've done more training probably than anybody wants to even think about. I have been training in different sports for days and days in the heat and the cold, you name it, but everything was geared towards neck down. Like, of course, you know, we're aware now that what we do physically has an impact on our brain and our mind, but the intention was from the neck down. But for me, the greatest potential left for enhancing human performance is through cognitive performance. So when we're actually intentionally leveraging science and technology to move the brain based on neuroplasticity towards greater function and optimization, now, we, now we've tapped into this, what I like to call the last frontier. So that's what Nestry is. Nestry is applying neuroscience in a way that can become scalable, in a way that can be integrated into settings and give people this ability to train from the neck up in a 30 minute session, sitting down, being able to pop the hood on your brain, right? In Nestry, we can look at neural networks, like 19 different neural networks, everything from executive function to mood, to anxiety, to balance, psychomotor speed, all of it. And then you can see compared to your age-based norms, how well your circuits are functioning. Mm -hmm. And if you choose, then you can train it. And for me, that's fascinating. I love this ability now to begin training the brain because like you said, neuroplasticity is new. The science of neuroscience itself is pretty young compared to most sciences. And 
as my mentor, Dr. Tartar would say, it's like drinking from a fire hose because there's just research articles coming out every day. Um, so that that's really Nestry. And then mastery development, it's my calling. It's when I was sitting there in that football locker room saying, man, somebody should really help that guy. Man, like we say we're family, but mm. we see that his life behaviors are looking risky. Mm. We know that the long-term trajectory of that is going to be rough. Nobody's helping him. And then one day something inside of me went, why are you always telling somebody that they should be helping? Why not you? You're the person that sees it. So then I get into graduate school and I'm sitting there and I'm studying all this psychology, but then I've got this neuroscience over on this side and I go, well, I'm never going to fit in just the psychology box because I, I'm, I'm, I've done more than that. I see the world different than that. So then I'd have, I've got this performance background, this psychology discipline that I'm learning, this neuroscience discipline that I'm learning. And then I said, okay, how do I bring that together to go create the changes that I want to see? Well, what are the changes you want to see? Well, I want to see people live better, feel better, and be better. I want people to be physically, mentally, and emotionally healthy. But I also need, I know that you need to perform at your best. So why not bring it together? So mastery development became a performance vertical and a whole health vertical. And what I want to do is teach people the importance of physical, mental, and emotional health. What are the skills? What are the things you need to know about it? How do you develop these areas in your own life? And then people are always going to know how to be the best they can be. So I love that. I'm obsessed with this development process. So I really brought those together. And that's what mastery development is. That's why I do consulting and coaching with individuals, coaches, companies. And I really just say, what's your, what's your pain point? I'm going to bring performance, mind, and brain behavioral science to help you get to where you want to go. Because I only work with people that have ambitious goals. Because anything else, I'll, I'll be bored. <laughs> All right, Julius, I'm going to turn that on you a little bit. What is your pain point in life right now? Like what, uh, I mean, I know we can read your uh, resume and it's, it, it appears to be all up and to the right. Uh, but yeah. I've worked with enough people to know that everybody's got something they're struggling with. Everybody's got something they're trying to figure out. What's that for you right now? Oh, that's a great question. And um, my value of uh, authenticity is what allows me to, to step into that and then courage as well. Um, you know, my biggest pain point is the suffering um, of not being able to be on mass, be at the top of mastery mountain. Like I get very frustrated about being a novice. Like when I went back to graduate school, it was humbling, but irritating that I had to be a rookie again. I, I hate, I hate the experience to be honest. I dislike being a novice so bad that I will relentlessly work to become an intermediate, then to become proficient, then to become advanced. I want to get to the top of success mountain. And I had to really endure some things that I wanted to not do anymore. I didn't want to be the low man on the totem pole anymore. And people go, what do you mean low man on the totem pole? Well, it doesn't matter. When you play professional sports, you don't make decisions. They tell you what to do. I used to go and I had a couple of coaches. I would tell them, hey, I want to, I think we should be doing this. I, I want to do more of this. And they said, hey, Julius, check this out. We don't pay you to think, we pay you to run. And right, like those are those things that become hurtful for me. And those are those yeah. things that I was like, wow, like if I ever want to be able to think for myself mm -hmm. and show who I am intellectually, I have to leave this space and go to another one. And that was a, a, one catalyst for me to make that switch. But I suffer all the time. Like when you stop blocking it out, you become aware of it, right? Like um, it's hard to sit down with people and do therapy because it's not just their emotions in the room. It's my emotions in the room. I want to be able to make sense of my emotions. I want to be able to courageously feel without looking to get rid of the feeling. For me, I have what I would call higher trade anxiety. And through that high trade anxiety, I recognize that like I'm always avoidant uh, just a little bit like trying to say, oh, that looks stressful. Let me go this other way. And so these are these things, right? And like, I could go on and on, right? About all these things I've learned about who I am emotionally and what to do with it. 
But th those are the things that I want to do. I really want to grow emotionally, not grow to not experience emotions because I've been cold before and that didn't serve me at all. But what I'm trying to do is learn how to have the courage to experience the emotions and admit it, right? Like, hmm. am I angry right now? Can I just admit that I'm angry that that angered me? Can I admit that that hurt? Can I admit that I'm afraid? And that process of becoming comfortable doing that is hard, but I'm very committed to it. Yeah, I like that. You know, I think one of the challenges for for guys, you know, on a, a if we're going to generalize is we like to find a problem and fix it, right? It's not really this integration uh, or this acceptance of, oh, this is part of who I am. Now I'm going to work with it, right? So it doesn't it doesn't affect the rest of me or I can overcome it quicker or but generally we don't some of the the more deep parts of us we don't ever fix, right? They're, 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 our, they're our thorn in our side, right? So do you, do you find that in your experience that a lot of guys have to get over that I'm going to fix it mentality, right? I would say that a lot of men are not as courageous as they think they are. Hmm. And, and when you talk about that process, right? Like most men don't want to sit with the emotion. They want to fix the emotion. They want it to be resolved, right? People come into therapy. They say, I don't like the fact that I have anxiety. I want it gone. Well, as long as you have a brain in your head, you're going to have anxiety. Well, I don't like the fact that I'm sad. Well, do you have a heart? Do you love people? Well, you're going to be sad. Well, I don't like the fact that I get angry. Well, what are you? So these are basic emotions. We cannot live life without them as long as we're human. But what we can do is ignore them. Right. And when we ignore them, they sit within us. But yes, you're right. To one degree, we want to fix them. But if we really wanted to fix them, why don't more men do the work? Right. The reason more men don't do the work is because they're part-time courageous. Mm. So many men are part-time courageous. If a guy walks up to you at a bar and challenges you to a fist fight, you're ready to slide the chair back, right? But if you are going through a tough situation with your child or your spouse, and now you're full of a bunch of emotion. You don't want to take that on. You want to drink that away. You want to sex that away. You want to work that away. Nah. So really, and this is what this is what became a tr um, a mirror for me in my life is when I had to look in my own mirror and say, mm, "Have you put your work in emotionally and mentally, or are you scared to do it?" And the truth is, of course, I was scared. Well, I don't want to go dig up some past pain. Why well, do I want to go sit in sadness? I wasn't taught to do that. I grew up as a man in America. You know, you and the boys go out drinking, you talk about life, and then it's supposed to be resolved, but it's not. And I like to go challenge people. When I speak and when I come into spaces, I go, I challenge you to do it. You want to fix the emotion, fix it. But you're not going to fix it those ways. That's unhealthy coping. This is the way that it gets done. Part-time courageous. I like that. I know. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you're from a faith background and, and Sean and I both come from a pretty traditional faith. Uh, but uh, I, something I've seen more in the last, I don't know, 20, but especially the last 10 years is what I, I would call spiritual bypassing of the things that you're talking about. Um, that we try to fix them or we try to tell other people to fix them. You just need to pray more. You just need to read the Bible more. You just need to, you just need to change your mindset. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know about anybody else in the world, but that, that, that wasn't really working out for me, uh, for, for these big things. Like Sean says that we wrestle with our whole life and, um, and we can't get to the bottom of them. What would you say to anybody out there that has kind of seen it like, well, I don't need that. I don't need the mental health help. I don't need the, the therapy. I don't need to get into that. Cause I just, I just need to like, get my willpower straight and just choose to do the right thing. Uh, tell us how that's been for you. Cause it's, it sounds like you're, you're just as equally deep into the psychology clinical side of it. Right. So mm -hmm. what would you say to those people? You know, um, I think I'll, I'll break it into two and I'll first start with the spiritual component. Um, and most people just don't read their faith. Like if you ever actually take the time to read your faith, you are going to be astonished by how what you thought faith was changed. There's a verse that I say all the time. The Lord said, Jesus Christ was made perfect through suffering. 
stop. Do we really think about what that means? That means the Lord looks at looks at this the, the lamb that didn't deserve to suffer and said that was and he was made perfect through suffering. So what's your relationship with suffering? Flip through the actual words. I'm I'm pretty sure that every disciple was killed, many beheaded. Like actually like read David's story, right? Like he suffered in fear in caves, running from for his life from Saul for years. Being a person of faith does not remove suffering from your cup. In actuality, suffering is good because it brings you to the doorstep of the things that you need to confront. And so, so many of the times we just want the emotion gone. We don't want to go through the door that we need to walk into to confront what's been deep down inside of us, right? We'd rather be coward. Like I have this visual in my mind that there's these younger parts of me, young Julius, that was in this really scary situation or traumatized situation that he couldn't control and he couldn't resolve the way he wanted to. And so that me is like huddled up, huddled up in some little corner somewhere, waiting for the adult me to extend a hand and say, bro, it's good. Like we're not eight anymore. And that person that did that to you can't do you like that anymore. I got you. Come on out. And then you're, you're going into your inner addict and you're cleaning it up and you're making sense of who you are and what you've been through and you're accepting it. And that's your maturation. This whole purpose for people of faith is to be here on this earth to mature spiritually. It's going to take suffering. You've taken more than just a faith path in order for suffering to transform you. Correct. So, so for the people that have not embraced this other part of the path of the clinical help and the um, growing and understanding yourself and, and um, seeking help for transformation uh, on a clinical way, um, how is that different than just the spiritual help? You know, There are some nuances there. And these things overlap so much. Like we like to, to put them in these little categories it's so hard to separate psychology from spirituality. Some psychologists in the past have been like, you just can't. And some that aren't spiritual are like, absolutely. You never need spirituality for anything, right? So bias is, is weaved in there. But um, the difference I would say between psychology and spirituality is spirituality is based on beliefs and psychology is based on treating illnesses. So there's a different, there's a different flavor to it. There's a different approach to uh, address those things. So like, right. So say you, you come to me, right. And you sit down and you say, John comes in and says, Hey, Julius, I'm, I'm burnt out. Me and my wife were struggling. Um, my relationship is strained with my kids and I don't really have any joy or passion for life. John, you and I are going to spend the next hour every week for the next six months. And we are going to confront what's struggling, what you're struggling with emotionally together. And so really that's what the clinical side is. The clinical side is saying, I, I've tried everything. I I'm, I'm, I'm at my point. I can't do it alone. And I'm ready to admit it. You help me. The spiritual side is I've tried everything on my own. I'm, I'm done. I'm on my last thing and I'm ready to admit it. God help me. And then how you go about it is different. But like you said, I like a combination I absolutely am fine with therapy. I absolutely will use the techniques that I teach clients or patients. But then I also believe that if you want full meaning existentially, psychology can't give you that. Spirituality is one of the only things that can help you make sense of why you're here and what should happen out of this life, how you should treat people, what your family should be like. Like that, mm. that spirituality brings that structure. Mm. I like that. That was good. So working with, you know, highly ambitious people like you do now, um, from the outside looking in, is it challenging to, those people tend to be like, I can do it. I can figure it out. I can do it. Give me time. I have endless energy. 
out of know-how you know it's kind of like the, the the hero maybe they don't rely on their team as much do you find that their achilles heel is their competency and their ambition as much as it is their strength um you know or or is ambition kind of defined differently for you in in that setting uh you know i i think i have to say it depends but i would like to to separate into the verticals that i that i teach through mastery development right their ambition their inner intrinsic motivation is elite that's what helped them to mm. get elite so they usually perform very well unless one thing happens something rocks their confidence they never lost their intrinsic motivation to be great mm. but ask any professional athlete right. you can be wanting to be great every day but if you start losing a lot it can shake your confidence so a lot of times when i go work with really ambitious people i have to just show up and tell them do you know who you are have you looked at your body of work i don't care if you just got your company's got its ass kicked last two years you've been killing it for 30. Right, right. do not let the last two years color your belief in who you are and what you can do but it's easy to say that but the brain's designed mm -hmm to create primacy and recency effects. So my brain is operating based on what happened lately, yeah, right? Yeah. So there's these hardwired dynamics that affect us. But I would say when you work with, so now I've, I've really had this great perspective. I've worked the best in the world and I've worked with the people that are struggling the most in the world. You work at a community mental health clinic, you, you mm -hmm. see both ends of the spectrum. But best in the world, people often do not have great well-being. So their performance is good and all the good things about them help them to constantly be great performers, but they might have terrible physical, mental, and emotional health, terrible relationships because all they're focused on is here. And so being able to come in and help them get balance in those areas becomes very powerful for them because we know we can't fully love life unless we have a strong internal uh, well-being. But then it's opposite for for some people right that are not so intrinsically motivated type a hard drivers they struggle to get performance but the internal might be okay right like yeah i spend a lot of time with my friends we do things together i don't care so much about being the biggest company i'd rather you know sit in the backyard and talk with the neighbors or sort of things like that but they go man it is so hard to get my performance down and then you teach them the performance stuff. So it it's so nuanced, but it's fun work. I enjoy it. Well, Julius, we've talked a lot about holistic health and wellness, mental health, mindfulness. I don't, I think we live in an era that there is more publicized about that than ever in history. Uh, it's safe to talk about on a, on a, you know, public level. There's emphasis of it. It's mental health awareness month right now. Um, but what do you feel like is still missing from that space in, in really helping people beyond the conversation? Yeah, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that's missing is where do people go to get belief, right? Like something I think about a lot, and you guys can tell me what you think. There's no hope category on Netflix. Like when I go on Netflix and it's been a long day and I'm like, man, I just kind of mm. want to watch something today. I got horror, action drama it's like are we thinking about the fact that we're emotional beings and if you spend hours and hours watching things that create adrenaline fear anger like we literally will subject ourselves to watching rape on tv i mean just all these things right and i always ask myself man if why would they not just make one strip right there's 18 strips there's a thousand strips. why can't i just hone in on hope belief, joy, why are those categories so underrepresented? Why, I mean, not on Disney. I mean, I've got every streaming service, trust me. <laughs> and all the time I'm like, man, where do I go? Where yeah. do I go to get two hours of some feel good? And why is it so hard to find? Mm. And those are the things that I think about. And I think that, I mean, my goodness, man, everything is available in this country except hope. It's mind blowing to me. I, I I want everybody that's listening to start thinking about it. Yeah, like, yeah. It was the last time you turned on your radio and there was hope on there. Yeah. I think you're right in that, you know, even for me, 
because there's not that hope category, I turn stuff off. That's the closest thing, right? I detox, yep. but it's not hope. Nope. <laughs> it's detoxing. Yeah. Our best is, our best is neutral. Right. Like, no, like all the, totally all right. the money we have, all the creative people, no hope category, no, nowhere you can go where you watch something or someone and you feel better, more confident. And that's what I try to do when I go speak to audiences or when I go work with people, I'm aware that a lot of people just aren't thinking about this and I want to go pour that on the people. I want people to feel well after interactions that they have with me. That that's, that's what I want to see more of. Yeah. And I, I think the stuff that is produced that is trying to be that way is often super cheesy. You know, uh, Bono said, one of the hardest songs to write is a joyful song that feels sincere. It's easy to write things that are like dark and moody and melancholy, but to communicate and project hope and joy in a sincere and authentic way is really challenging. Mm. And uh, I'm sure that you do that. So uh, I want to tell people uh, the best way for them to find you uh, out there and, and connect with the work that you're doing. You know, if somebody wants to see what I'm doing, learn more about what I teach, uh, the best way would be through Instagram, uh, just Julius underscore Thomas. You can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I put a lot of my content. I haven't started my YouTube channel yet, but at some point this year, I'll have this YouTube channel. And uh, that's going to be where I talk about some hopeful things and some positive things. But just, you know, these topics of educating people about how to be their best and live their best and be healthy that's what I'm supposed to be pouring into the world. That's my calling. And I'm going to amplify that voice as, as loud as it, the world allows it to be. I dig that, man. I mean, that's why, that's why John and I are, are doing this, right? This, this podcast isn't because we, we have any other desire than we have these conversations for many years. We're like, man, whoever will listen, right? If it's five guys, yep. if it's 50, it doesn't, yep. I mean, to, to, for them to really, tie into this experience and if it breaks them open i mean that's that's worth every bit of time we put into this um i could i i commend you for that and i could not agree more and i love the word you said break them open right like that is that is what men need we need that something to create a shift in that fissured event all these stuff that we've been taught to just internalize yeah you used a couple words earlier that are uh, in our core values, and those are courage and authenticity. And uh, a lot of, it takes courage to be authentic and to be honest uh, with the people around you, be honest about how you feel, even to be willing to discover how you feel. So uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. We feel like it's right in line with what we're doing. And uh, thank you so much, Julius, for your time today. And everybody else that's listening, hang around. We'll be with you in just a few seconds for after the interview. Welcome back to after the interview, Sean, let's, let's go with you first. What stood out to you from our time with Julius, by the way, it was awesome. I, I was so inspired by that guy and, uh, I want to hang out with him. What really hit you? Uh, the, you know, part-time courageous bit. I thought that that was such a great way to, to kind of frame, um, accurately how a lot of guys operate, right. They think, in those moments, you know, if they're ready to, you know, I think he, he was talking about jumping into a, a bar fight or something. And, you know, those are the easy uh, ways that we think we're, you know, our courage is proven, you know, not in the everyday, um, you know, consistent, authentic vulnerable life right that's not we don't consider that courageous but that's because that's a, that's actually the tougher way to be courageous as a male not the easier way right not the not the mma way right like <laughs> oh yeah you know i can because yeah so that that was a i i haven't heard that uh before but you know i think we both in the moment uh enjoyed that uh and it's so accurate but yeah, I think I think as men, it's easier for us to do the grand gesture, yeah. That 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 looks really noble, and looks tough and courageous. But yeah, that daily, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about how vulnerability is courageous. You know, her book Dare to Lead is is about that. 
um, from a leadership perspective, but um, yeah, that daily, the courage to be, to admit you're wrong, the courage to um, admit that you're struggling or admit that you, you feel insecure. Those, those are some serious daily courage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and even, even the, what we talked about admitting that you can't fix yourself or certain parts of yourself, right? Like the integration of that in a more healthy way. Um, you know, changing the way you, you look at yourself in the mirror uh, without, uh, you know, kind of manipulating or convincing yourself that those parts are conquered or I don't know. Yeah. So it's, it was good. And it, you know, he's a perfect example, example of it too, because his, his life has obviously required and we just touched the surface. I feel like the content was so um, rich and we kind of wanted to jump on and explore different bits. But um, I think the more you dig into his story, uh, there's no way that um, he hasn't developed that, right? It's not, and he he would probably argue we may or may not have this innate courage but for him, it was probably taking that step every time, right? And building that confidence mm -hmm. to pivot, um, sitting in that classroom when he doesn't understand anything for weeks um, and deciding this is actually where I want to be. I'm going to push myself through this. Um, you know, that's that's where he has built his, his solid foundation for courage. Um, and that's translated into just the, whole, the holistic way that he's, trying to help other guys too, which I love, right? He's not, it's not about, um, you know, I can do it. You can do it too. You know, these are the ways it's, he, he really framed it out in in a way that, um, you know, understands kind of the nuance of the journey for each individual and, but also the importance of things like hope, um, and where things are lacking and, Anyway, it was just like, I definitely feel like, like there's a part two in that conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I, I kind of joked with him about being from Stockton. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Stockton is, is in California. It's kind of North central California. It's not an easy town to grow up in. He said that he said, if you grow up in yeah. Stockton, you grow up fighting. Uh, I'm a big MMA fan and two MMA legends, the Diaz brothers, Nick and Nate Diaz are from Stockton. And um, I don't think you can underestimate how much growing up in a place that was difficult played mm -hmm. into him having resilience and just a, a belief that he could overcome things. Sure. And you've posted about this on social media, but you know, when parents protect their kids from consequences and, and, and kind of like, I think they call them lawnmower parents now, like plow down all of the um, barriers that may be in the way of their success, you are not preparing your child for the future. You're preparing them to fail. Right. And what do you think about that? Like, I, you know, I know growing up in a harsh environment has its negatives too, but, but uh, don't you think that played into his ability to just look at, not get caught up in, in obstacles or, yeah. or to be afraid of them. Yeah. I mean, I hundred percent. And that's always the big question for me, right. Is what makes him different than the 99 others that make the other choice, right. Or can't get out of the situation. Um, I, I always want to ask that, right? Like what, what is it about you? Sure. He has a physical, you know, he's six, five, two thirty, or whatever he is. So he had the physical tools to kind of excel, but still it's a decision, right? There's a lot of six, five guys that never yeah. make it, you know? Um, yeah. And like you said, he was a 12th man on the, on the college basketball team. It's not like he was a top recruit, you know? So he, he made up his mind you know, he said Portland state was his way out, you know, his first step out of Stockton. Um, and so every decision after that was kind of securing a further step, not away from it, but, you know, out of that lifestyle, you know, I think he said, he always just thought about, you know, sometimes where his next meal would be, you know, that dollar 50 down the street. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And, but yeah, I mean, what is it about guys like him? You know, he, he's a poster child. I think that's a frustrating thing with me in the media, you know, and not probably because I'm an old guy now, but you know, guys like him should be all over the there. I mean, they're the local heroes, yeah. you know, like they really, because they're, they, it's not about, they're not preaching just uh, financial success, right? Like talking about your why answering, you know, the call overcoming the obstacles uh, mm-hmm. changing in a moment, right? Like he would, you know, like just asking the questions in the moment, why not? Is yeah. such a big thing that a lot of people don't do. You know, I mean, how have we never heard of this guy? He played one year of college football <laughs> in one year and went on to play for seven years in the NFL, play in the Super Bowl, two time Pro Bowler. Uh, you're right. Like we need to deconstruct more about this guy's life. I'd love to know about his parents. I'd love to know about right. his upbringing. Like who are the people that the mentors that inspired him to be this way? I don't think a person like this is developed like outside of other influences, right? right. There's people right. that helped instill this in him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just watched the, the, uh, the movie air. Have you, mm-hmm. have you watched that yet? I'm going to see you this weekend. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, Michael Jordan's mom, right? She was a killer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like when, when you watch that movie, you're like, ah, yeah. that's where Michael, you know, a part yeah. of what established him. And yeah. So for, for Julius, it would be interesting to talk to his parents um, and, and see, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Why not? And, and I, and I think that the, what I love too is, people tend to be either real into their emotions and gut and the calling. Right. But it's almost like this whimsical emotional drive that can drive them off the edge. Right. They make really bad decisions because they're always just the wind of the calling. (laughs) Right. Just Uh, calling that they feel called to do things that everyone around them realizes they have no talent in. Right. Right. And shouldn't be doing. um, Yeah. But he's the guy that, that again, puts the work in, but in that moment also understands he trusts that intuition to make that, maybe it's a drastic change and really pursue it. Mm-hmm. But he's committed to that, right? Once he makes that decision, it's not like a couple of weeks and, and if it doesn't work out, he's out. Right. Um, yeah. So just a, yeah, there was just a lot of things that. I would love to hear like, what are things that you felt that intuition towards and you failed at? Like right. what are, yeah, what yeah. are some of the biggest failures in your life? We talked about your highlight reel, but. Yeah. 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 I loved what he said about having to pay attention in athletics. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. 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 Like coming into meetings with people and they're like on their phones, they're not talking to each other. And he's like, Instantly. Man, that would have been. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now it's, it's really frustrating. You know, I'll, I'll have some meetings and you might have someone's undivided attention for 15 minutes. And then you see them flip over their phone or look at their watch or, you know, there's just, there's a very small window, but yeah. Um, and you think of athletes, right. As these d- dummies. So yeah. it kind of switched that in my mind, like, Oh, maybe I should respect yeah. the intellect and the discipline of a lot of these guys more. Yeah. Um, I think the same about the military, you know, like the, 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 the leadership training these guys get and the discipline that, that is really forced on them. Right. It's the same with athletes too, right? I think we've we've uh, become afraid to ask much of people in the workplace, mm. right? Uh, to say, hey, this is what it means to be a part of this organization. So if that's not a fit for you, then, you know, I mean, where he was at, you get fined, right? Thousands yeah. of dollars. <laughs> right. Can you imagine that? You're in a business meeting. Uh, sorry, it's a $2,000 fine. You looked at your phone. It would be, it'd be a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say this is kind of a sidebar, but uh, a little humble brag too. Um, the other night I went to see Bono in uh, New York City. He did a one-man show at the Beacon mm. Theater. He, which he led, he it was just him and a couple of musicians for two and a half hours, no breaks, no intermission. Really? But they, um, it was one of these shows that they force you to hand over all your smart devices. Um, I had to give them my smartwatch and my phone they put it in a container that's mag locked that I carry with me, but I can't open it 
And as you're leaving the show, you hand it to them and they unlock it for you. And man, I kind of, I love to take pictures at, at shows. Yeah. Too much so. Right. And now I wish every concert did this because the amount that you are engaged mm. because of not having those, even the opportunity for those distractions, right. you're not even wondering if your phone just buzzed in your pocket or not. Is it was awesome. Mm. So I, I Simon Did Sinek talks about that, about having like a no phone, no laptop policy in meetings. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think, I think we could start there. Right. In the workplace. Right. I thought you posted some pictures of your Bono. I did at the bottom of the posting. I said, full, full disclaimer, these photos were stolen from the internet because I wasn't oh. allowed to have my phone. Oh, I, I didn't get that far. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whoops. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. But no, I think, you know, you get into a meeting and people got their laptops open and they're, you don't even know if they're working on what the meeting is right. about. Right. No idea. Right. Right. So I, I think that's a fair thing to do in, in meetings, a little yeah. off topic, but right. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Anything else that stood out to you? Uh, he's, uh, I definitely want to spend some more time hanging with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, moving into this next season for me, I, I emailed him to thank you afterwards. And, you know, I was like, we might need to talk more just on a professional level, right. <laughs> you know, taking mm -hmm. over the, you know, 88 employees is going to be a yeah. lot. Right. And I, I haven't done, I haven't done, any like real kind of intensive of that type of work in a while, you know? Um, because yeah, even, speaking of people saying yes to something that they've never done before, Sean, why don't you just go ahead and tell everybody what you got going on in case they happen to be in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, well, but I, but I have done it just a smaller scale, you know, I think, um, but, but, but spill the beans. Let's, let's, let's do it here. World premiere exclusive. What are you yeah. doing, Sean? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been spinning my wheels for a while, but I, I found a business that, uh, I'm really excited about, it's, you know, restaurant, uh, bakery, coffee shop, a couple locations. Um, but there's 88 employees. Um, it's a behemoth of a, of a business. Um, the owner's retiring. And so we're, I'm about a month from taking over operations and, um, it's, it's, a uh, yeah, it's going to be a challenge because I've only managed, um, 25 employees before, uh, you know, about 50 from a distance, but we had a, uh, a general manager that kind of handled the outliers. Um, so yeah, I mean it's a it's one of those all in propositions, right? Financially, all the all the cards are in. So if it tanks, I'm hosed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I, how like, many square feet is the main location? Ten thousand square feet, three thousand outside. Ten thousand square feet, nice restaurant, cafe, bakery, uh, coffee shop. And other than the coffee shop, I mean, talk about courage. Eighty something employees, and other than the coffee shop. Pretty much everyone there knows how that place runs better than you do. <laughs> correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Uh, but, you know, I think that's the uh, the beauty of this situation. It, it, it's really going to call me to task on how I, how I first approach people, right? Uh, my job isn't to fix a company, right? It's already profitable. Mm -hmm. It's already running. So my job is to go in there and let the... 88 people know that I value them and I want to know who they are. Right. So, and that's going to take a lot of time up front, but we're going to do personality tests. Uh, I'm going to have kind of folders on each person. Um, I want to know like what they love, what they, so it's kind of putting into practice all this, right? Like your value doesn't matter if you're the dishwasher or the executive chef. Um, I want to know who you are, how you tick, what you don't like here, you know, be honest with me, what, what, uh, you do, what you do like, um, and then trying to, instead of changing anything that I see, change things that they tell me um, need to be changed. And just, again, learn their story and let them know that they're valued. And I have no intention of coming in there and, you know, laying off 25% of the workforce um, because of X, Y, and Z. So, um, but I also know that I don't know. And so I think uh, whatever 
vision or plan I have, it may not work or it may not land well. Um, but I think stuff like this and the guys we're talking to and just the past two and a half years is, has uh, prepared me for to take this gigantic leap. So, well, brother, if no one else is telling you, I I think I'm just in awe of the courage to step into this thing, risk everything, and a massive, huge, gigantic. Uh, is it cajones or carhones? <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's that's what it takes. So, and it's me and your yeah. I, I think we we need to do a whole separate reality show of you coming in to this restaurant and basically starting from scratch relationally and yeah. uh, and because your takeover, if you want to call it that, is more of a cultural one than you know, a uh, product based right. one, right? Right. Product What's the style, restaurant right. called? Uh, I can't say that yet. It's still under NDA. You can't so say that? Le- yeah, legally I can't. So it's, but it's in, okay. um, it's in Durham. One, one's in Durham, one's in Chapel Hill. So, yeah. um, but yeah, no, it's, it's like. It rhymes with med oh. mobster. <laughs> He's just making stuff. Yes, yeah, we're revealing it here. Sean's taking over the red lobster of Durham, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh man. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I've completely diverted us off track, but uh thank you for sharing all that. I think it's a good yeah. comparison of yeah. uh having the courage to to be a novice in some ways, you know. In some ways, right. Um yeah. yeah. So uh in in some ways, but in a huge in a huge risk. So yeah. um excited to come visit and see it in person. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, buddy, that was a good one. Yeah, man. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, hope you will continue to join us. And I would love to hear any uh, people that you would like to hear on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, email us uh, either Sean at knownexperience.com, John at knownexperience.com. Um, would love to hear if you've made it to this far in the podcast, you are invested. So we we really want to hear what you have to say. But yeah, it's exciting. And, you know, once we, we keep talking about it, but the, our trips have been on hold until I firm up this business um, plan. But once the close happens, it'll definitely, um, I, I can't wait to, to throw that out, to throw that out there and kind of invite some of these past guys to be on it. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be good, but. Yeah, man. Well, thank you, Sean, for being yeah. on. Thank you, Julius. That was awesome. And uh, and we do hope that this podcast is something that's helping you grow like it's helping us grow. Like it's to be able to do these interviews every couple of weeks has been really a benefit to me. So yeah. that said, hope that you will continue to experience the power of being known. Mm-hmm.